here in a little while, you're going to go and you're going to leave this place and you're going to go probably sit down with your family or you're going to sit down in some way to eat a meal, right? Now, I'm making one of the biggest mistakes any pastor can ever make because all of a sudden now you're not thinking about what I'm saying. You're thinking about, I wonder what I'm going to eat for lunch or, oh, I'm looking forward to what I'm eating for lunch. But um, the chances are really, really good before you actually begin to eat that meal that you will ask the blessing. You know, at my, at my house, I'll ask most likely one of the boys, hey, would you ask the blessing on the food? And they will pray. And it's probably going to be a very similar to prayer to what they often pray. And for you, it might be a very similar prayer to what you often pray. And it's thanking the Lord for the food, um, thanking Him for uh, the fact that you have the ability to eat that food. And um, just thank you for the nourishment to our body. You know, something like that, okay? It's different for everybody. But you're going to sit and you're going to pray and, 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 and thank the Lord for that food. Um, now, I, I titled last week's message and this week's message just very simply, The Blessing, okay? Um, because what Paul does is he gets to the end of the spiritual blessings that he's talked about in chapter 1. He's at the end of chapter 1 here, and he launches out in this prayer, this blessing, if you will. But one of the great differences between Paul's blessing here in Ephesians chapter 1 and our lunchtime blessing is that he goes deep. He goes really deep. And most, most of the time, now this is not always, but most of the time, you know, we're just simply thanking the Lord for our food, which is a good thing for us to do. But I also see a model prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul prays for us where he just launches out in this deep prayer. And he prays for several things. He prays, first of all, that the believers would know God that they would know God. Secondly, that they would know God's calling. So, so what is it that God has called me to do? Thirdly, that they would know God's riches, that they would know God's riches. And if you remember, last week we talked about God's riches being the believers themselves. God looks on us as Christians as his inheritance. He looks on us as his riches. But then lastly, that they would know God's power. And today we're going to focus on this idea of power. Okay, what is God's power? What is it we're talking about here? I want to dive into this because this is super important for us to understand as we launch into the rest of the book. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start off here by reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And you say, yeah, but you read it twice last week and, and we read it once already today. Well, let's read it again. And here's why because I need this. I need this. I need to immerse myself in this and come to fully understand what Paul's talking about here. So we're going to read it all together. We're going to talk through it again afterwards, okay? But let's read Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having your eyes, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
And my goal for us today is to, to come to understand this passage, to talk through this idea of, of God's power, and then to apply it to our lives. But I want to start by going to the Lord and just saying, hey, God, would you help us in this? Okay, so would you pray with me? Our Father, I come to you, and I ask that in this time where we study your word, that, Father, you will, um, that you will illuminate your word to us, help us to understand what it means. But then, Father, I pray that you will show us how we are to live our lives based off of what we've read and studied. Father, may Jesus be preeminent in this place today, and may any other distraction that we brought into this room be gone. Father, I pray that you will help us to focus on you and you alone. I believe you've got some important things to do in our lives today through your word. So, Father, we pray that you have the freedom to do so and that we give you the liberty to do whatever you want. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let's jump in right here with verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What Paul's praying there is that the people would come to know God's power, specifically the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Here's the first thing that I want for us to hold on to today, okay? And it's, it's this right here. God's immeasurable power is ours already for us as believers. God's immeasurable, that means you cannot measure it, power is available to us already for those of us who believe who are, who are Christians. Now, we are in a war. And in this war, there's two adversaries that we have. First of all, there's the adversary of sin, all right? The adversary of sin. And if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. The first adversary we have is sin. We were born sinners. We didn't have to learn how to be a sinner, okay? I've got four boys to attest to that fact. They didn't have to learn how to sin. Now, they do learn after a while what to do in, in sinning, but they were born sinners. And because sin is our nature, then we have to go against the grain and we have to fight the adversary of sin. And even though we're still followers of Jesus, we are bombarded with worldliness and we are bombarded with sin. Every single time we turn around, social media, news outlet, movies, whatever it is, we're going to find some kind of temptation to sin. And we're going to find some kind of temptation for us to give in to what the world says is good, but what God says is, is bad. You see, sin is anything that goes against the will of God and the holiness of God. And as believers, as followers of Jesus, God has called us to be holy as he is holy. That's the command that he gave the Israelites in the Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy. You jump to 1 Peter in, in, in the New Testament, and Peter is commanding the believers. He says, be holy. Walk as children of God who are holy. Right? So that's the commandment that we've got. So we've got to fight this sin that comes up in our lives. Paul, in, in, in Romans chapter 6, talk about the sin, and he says this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, the parts of your body, the flesh, who you are. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, remember who you are and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have or will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You say, well, how in the world do we do that? How do we make sure that sin doesn't dominate us? How do we win this war that we are in against sin? That's something that Paul wrestled with in Romans chapter 7, so the next, the next chapter there. He says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. And you hear him saying this too. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, he's saying, I am a sinner and I hate the fact that I'm a sinner. How many of you have ever been in the point where um, you have just messed up, you have just sinned, you've done something that defies God, it offends somebody else, whatever it is, you've sinned, okay? And you're like, ah, I can't get rid of this sin. It just keeps coming up over and over and over again, and I just can't get rid of it. Anybody else been there? Or am I the only one that fights that every single, I don't know, day almost, seems like? Yeah, we, we, we fight this battle with, with sin, and we want to get rid of it. There's this war that's almost like it's pulling us apart where we know that we are children of God, that we are in Christ, but we're also a part of this world and sin is a part of our lives and it's, it's pulling at us. And we kind of cry out just like Paul did, wretched man that I am, I'm a wretched person. <laughs> Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul continues with the answer. Here's how I can get victory from this sin. Verse 25, just very simply, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, how am I going to get rid of the sin in my life? How can I get rid of this? Oh, thanks be to God. It comes through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's the key right there. Paul's saying this he's saying, if not for Christ, then I would be fighting a losing battle. So then when Paul gets to Ephesians chapter 1 and he's praying that the believers would know God's power, one of the things he's praying is that the believers would know how to fight sin using God's power. And there's another adversary that's out there that we've got to talk about. It's not just the adversary of sin. There's also the adversary of Satan. And these are two different things. Sin is the act. Satan is the dominion, the force behind all the evil in the world. Two different things that we're talking about here. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to learn how to put on the armor of God to withstand Satan, to push him back. 1 Peter chapter 5, we read that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, just looking for somebody to devour, somebody to eat up. That means he's looking for me to eat up, okay? He's looking for you to eat up. John chapter 10, Satan is described by Jesus as a thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. You say, well, you know what? I do pretty good in my life. I don't really feel that many attacks from Satan. I think I must be doing pretty good. Can I, can I share with you, though, um, a story that you already know? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were walking and talking with God every single day. There was no sin, no evil, no sickness, none of that stuff. They were walking and talking with God every single day in close community with God. But then one day, Satan comes along. And it doesn't take much at all for him to pull them in, and he has all of a sudden defeated Adam and Eve. Sin enters into the world. So what makes us think in any way that we are stronger than Adam and Eve are? We're not. We have got to have a power. We have got to have a force. We've got to have somebody in our corner that helps us fight Satan. Because he really is looking for us. It really is a real war, a spiritual war that's taking place. We've got to have help, and that is where the power of God comes in. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British pastor who once said, we need to be enlightened with respect to the power of God working in us. In other words, we need to understand the power of God that works in us. Nothing else can enable us to stand against the wiles of the devil, 
except for the power of God. He's saying there that we've got to understand this power that is given to us by God. And if we don't understand it, if we don't understand it, then how in the world can we use it? How can we use the power of God? Now, I am in a room full of men who have fallen, okay? And I'm not talking just about sin. Yes, we've fallen into sin multiple times. I'm talking about we have fallen into the trap of thinking that, that directions are of the devil, okay? Here's an example. You get that big box that has your kid's toy in it for Christmas, and you think, I'm going to put this thing together all by myself. I don't need to worry about the directions, and you just throw them away. And what inevitably happens at some point, unless you're just a super genius, a smarter than the creator that created that toy, you got to have those directions. I think about um, the Dude Perfect YouTube video, the Christmas Stereotypes video where there's this one guy who's playing the part of a dad and he walks out into his backyard the night before Christmas and he dumps out all the parts to a trampoline and he dumps out all the parts to a basketball goal and he looks at the directions and he says, I don't need this, and he throws it away. All right, then the next, the next scene that you see is him kind of crawling around among all the parts. Oh man, they must have put, what, like four trampolines in this box or something like that is what he says. And then the next thing that you, that you see is him laying on his back saying, you know what? That $45 fully assembled fee doesn't sound, too, doesn't sound too shabby right now, does it? We're kind of the same way as, as believers, where we need directions to help us understand what our Creator has given us. And so how foolish would it be for us to, to try to navigate life and think, you know, I got this, I can do this all on my own, all on my own and never seek to understand the power that, that God truly does give us. And so what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is just very simply talk about this power. And the first question I want to ask is, what kind of power are we talking about here? What kind of power are we talking about here? Electric power, gas power, um, solar power, clean energy power? No. How about resurrection power? That's what we're talking about here. Resurrection power. Verse 19, Paul wants them to know the immeasurable greatness, what, what cannot be measured, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Folks, there is no power like resurrection power, because resurrection power wakes the dead. Resurrection power breathes life into an otherwise dead body. That's resurrection power. And what Paul's saying here is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God makes available to us as his children. There's a couple of Christian uh, songs that have come out in the last several years that speak to this. I think about Resurrection Power by Chris Tomlin. Now I have resurrection power living on the inside, Jesus. You have given me freedom. Right? You remember that song? Or there's a song, um, Same Power by Jeremy Camp. And I love this. The lyrics will be here on the screen for you. It says, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake, lives in us, lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea, lives in us, it lives in us. You know, even as I think about that song and I read the lines in that song, I think about stories in the Bible where we see over and over and over again the power of God, the power that's being talked about right here. Very first line there, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Think about that moment where God spoke into the, into the tomb where Jesus' body is laying and he raises Jesus from the dead. That's the power that's available to us. 
Or you think about that next line, the same power that commands the dead to wake. I think about Jesus when he's on his earth, in, in his earthly ministry and he's heading towards Bethany and he hears a message from Mary and Martha. Lazarus, our brother, is sick, even to the point of he might be dead soon. And what does Jesus do? He kind of waits around. He ministers some more. He waits several days, and all of a sudden he gets word that Lazarus is dead. So he goes to the tomb, and he says, open up that tomb. Roll that stone away. And they said, no, don't do that because the body's going to stink. He said, no, roll that stone away. And you can imagine them rolling that stone away, and the smell really does come out. But all of a sudden Jesus looks at that tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out of there. And what happens? Lazarus, who had been dead for days, gets up and walks out of the tomb. That's the same power that lives in us. You continue thinking about stories just from, from these lines. The, the same power that moves mountains when he speaks. I think about Matthew chapter 17 where Paul, excuse me, Jesus is talking about faith that moves mountains. He's saying, hey, if you have the faith that couples with the will of God, then God has the power to move mountains. What about that power that can calm a raging sea? The disciples and Jesus are on this boat heading across the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden a storm comes up. Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. The disciples are scared to death because they think they're going to die. The boat's going to capsize if it goes on much longer. So they scream out, Jesus, don't you care about us? And he stands up and he says, peace, be still, talking to the waves. And what happens? Boom, like glass. You continue reading there. It says that the, the, the disciples looked at Jesus with great fear. In other words, great awe. Who is this man? They said. Who is this man? That's the same power that we have available to us. The power that did all of that and much more is available to us. So then I think about some different people. Stephen in the New Testament, who followed Jesus all the way to his death. He had that power alive in him. I think about Paul, who withstood multiple shipwrecks, beaten many, many times, ultimately died for his faith, but started one of the greatest missionary, or multiple missionary campaigns, spread the gospel all over the known world. That's the power we're talking about here. So what kind of power is this? It's resurrection power. That's the kind of power that we have available to us. Look at verse 20. I'm going to read through the end of verse 23. Paul launches out here in this, in this proclamation of how great God is. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you look at that just at a quick glance, here's three quick things you can take away from it. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to tell you. Here's, here's what they are. Number one, Jesus is not dead. He is in the place of victory at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Number two, there is no name that is greater than that of Jesus. I think Peter said it best in Acts chapter 4 when he's standing before the Sanhedrin and he says, um, he says, there is salvation found in no other name, no other name given among men by which we must be saved than that of Jesus. 
Only in the name of Jesus can we find life and salvation. Thirdly, as I think about those verses, I think about how God operates in a realm that is completely different and much greater than our own realm. So we're stuck here on this earth, and we're in this bubble of sorts, of our own little worlds, but our God is much greater than that. He's involved in our lives, and he's sustaining us. Um, He's sustaining his creation, but he's in a class of his own. Everything is subject to him. There's no person or there's no thing that is greater than Jesus is. And knowing that should be an encouragement to us, but it should also fill us with this this reverent awe and and reverent, reverent wonder of God. Just the fact that he would choose to make us his children and give us this power is phenomenal. But then, kind of lastly, to tie everything together here at the end, on a very practical level, how does God's power help the individual Christian? How does God's power help the individual Christian? i got two things that I want to present to you. Number one is it brings peace to fear. It brings peace to fear. That's what God's power does. I was thinking this week about the opposite of power. What is the opposite of power? And I realized the opposite of power is fear. Um, We fear the things that we cannot control. But when you have power and you can control something, then it, it takes away the fear. And we live in a culture right now that's full of fear. There's economic fear, right? What's the economy going to do? There's, 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 there's physical fear. Am I going to get sick? Uh, there's, there's a fear of, of death that's inevitable someday. We're all going to die at some point. So there's this fear that comes up. But the power of God, when it enters into the picture, it brings peace to our fear. So what are you afraid of this morning? What are you afraid of? Are you allowing the power of God to speak into that fear? But then here's the second thing that on a very practical level, how God's power can help us, and that is that it gives us the tools to fight sin and Satan. It gives us the tools to fight sin and Satan. And with this, I would just very simply say that, um, that y'all, we, we oftentimes fight Satan and sin in the completely wrong way. Here's the wrong way. Think about King David, okay? As a shepherd boy, David. He comes and he's going to fight Goliath. And so King Saul says, here, take on my armor. And he puts his armor on, King, on, on shepherd boy David. And David's like, I can't do anything in this. I can't fight. I can't do anything in, in all of this. And, and he takes it off and he goes and in God's power kills Goliath. You know, a lot of times we try to, we try to put on armor. We try to put on tools or take up things. To, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And all along, God's saying, no. I work the best in weakness. In fact, he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. There's an author by the name of Ray Steadman who, um, in writing about this passage, he, uh, he tells a story of, of something that happened to him. He said that one day he was, he, was, um, he was met with a guy who was just in tears, crying on and on. And after a while, he was able to get out of him that this guy was torn apart because of the lust that he kept giving into over and over and over and over again. He said, I cannot defeat this. I cannot defeat it for anything. And so Ray Steadman said, I didn't didn't give him the tools that oftentimes, you know, you say, okay, well, fight it with this or fight it with this. He said, I took him to Ephesians chapter 1. And I very simply talked with him about what it means to have the power of God available to us. And he, he, said, he said, I explained to this guy how in his weakness, God had the ability to work the strongest. So I said, when that, when that temptation comes up again, 
When you fight this sin again, just go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I'm so weak, I cannot fight this on my own, I need you. I need your power to work in me. This guy's like, what in the world are you talking about there? No, give me some tools, give me something to work with here. And he's like, no, try it. So the guy says, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. Several weeks later, he sees this guy and he says, hey, how's things going? He said he's met with this great big smile. This guy said, I have never had as much victory and freedom over this sin as I've had over the last several weeks. Because anytime I start to struggle, I just go to God and I say, God, I'm, so, I'm too weak. I cannot fight this on my own. I need your power at work inside of me to fight this. And he said, I was going back to that passage in Ephesians chapter 1, and there's two words. There's two words that have stood out to me and that have changed my life. He said, it's the words, far above. If you look there, what we find is that it says that Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given. He said, those two words, far above, really opened my eyes. I thought, hey, if God is at work in me, if he has that kind of power, then nobody else's power can get even close to me. No demonic force, no lustful urge can be greater than the power of Jesus Christ. When I saw that fact, I was able to simply rest in the Lord. And it's been working. God has set me free. You know, I think sometimes we try to fight sin and Satan the wrong way. We try to put on the armor when God's just saying, I'm just looking for you. In your weakness, for my, perfect, my strength to be made perfect in you. One of the fears that I have is that we have a whole lot of Christians who have a power outage. They have a power outage. What do you think about a, a, a power outage? Power goes off in your house, you try to turn the lights on, and, and man, there's no light that can come up at all. You're in the dark. But yet Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said that you, talking about Christians, are the light of the world. You are the way that we as believers are the way that people see God. Look at that, that picture that's on the screen right now. Everything in the picture is a great big city. It's a great big city, but there's a power outage. One part of the city is dark, and you can see that trail of cars, you know, because they still have their lights as they, as they drive through the city. But one half of the city there is in a power outage. You know, my fear is that in our mission and our responsibility to be the light of the world, we've got a power outage. And there's a whole lot of people who can't see Jesus because our lights are out. Well, all along, God is going, hey, I've got the power. It's right there. I've given it to you. You just have to access it. A little bit later, we're going to find in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, we're going to find these words. Now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Get this, according to the power at work within us. In other words, he uses us to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I have just a couple of questions I want to ask you. The first one is this. Is the power within you that's been given to you by God, 
is the power within you making a connection to the light that shows Jesus to the world. In other words, is your light shining right now or is your power going out? There might be some sin that is dominating your life right now and you're thinking, you know, I, I can't find victory over this or I can't move through this or I don't feel like I can be, have any kind of level of, of freedom as a believer or even significance as a believer while, while the sin is here. It might be about time that you let the power of God, the strength of God work in your weakness.